So you said it was a complicated story how you got into medicine. In the first year I was doing pretty well, but then in the second year, life happened. My, my life became quite tricky. My mum was an alcoholic, she was drinking a lot. I left home, I had three jobs, I had a very busy social life. If a door gets slammed in your face, it doesn't mean no, it means maybe. Go around the side of the building, look for a window that's slightly ajar and just crowbar your way in. And I feel a bit like that's how I got into medical school. There was definitely some good fortune there. I kind of grew up when, when people did say things about my hair or my skin, in my my head it's like oh it's okay I felt sympathy for them nobody is as good at being you as you and nobody ever will be and the most important person most important relationship you'll ever have is the one with yourself so I think investing in that and if I could go back and give one little message to little Zoe it really would be just to treat yourself with as much love and as much kindness and as much respect as you do other people and life would have been a lot easier here's a question for you everyone and welcome back to another episode of A Millennial Mind. Today I have this morning's resident doctor, Dr Zoe Williams, and I'm so excited to get into this episode. If you're struggling with your grades, if you're struggling with not hitting a milestone, this podcast is going to show you that your mind can achieve anything you want. Really quickly, I also want to tell you that it's only a week to go to my goal setting workshop. And if you want to come and make sure 2024 is completely different for you, I'll leave the link to the tickets in my bio. I'm so excited to share this podcast with you. So let's get into it. Zoe. Shivani. Welcome to Millennial Minds. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy that I'm here because I'm not a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> it's making me feel young. <laughs> you are young. You look great. Thanks. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. And actually, I should have brought your book here because we're going to be talking about your book that you've yes. written. But for people who perhaps live under a rock and don't <laughs> ever switch on TV and have no idea who you are... Tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, so I, first and foremost, I'm a GP mm-hmm. and it's, I, it's a funny one when you're a doctor. It's kind of, it's what I do, but it's not just what I do. It's sort of yeah. who I am as well. Um, so I'm an NHS GP first and foremost, but then I do various other stuff, media work. So I'm a, one of the resident GPs on This Morning. Um, I write a column in a newspaper just this year become an author and a podcaster um what else would I do and I'm a mum hardest job of all of them <laughs> honestly the hardest job um yeah and I would say I'm a real advocate for for girls and women as well why are you such an advocate for girls and women did you did you struggle with that growing up I think I did I think I I had I had a number of different struggles growing up um so I grew up in Burnley in the northwest of England so about just over an hour from Manchester um but it's a very um a very working class town sort of post-industrial town so you know a lot of unemployment and quite deprived Mm. and um and my dad's Jamaican so my grandparents moved to the UK from Jamaica when he was a little boy Um, But we were the only Jamaican family there. So where I grew up, it's predominantly white. There's quite a large Asian community, but there were no black people. So I was always different. Um, And I think being a... I have an older brother. I think being a girl and different was different to being a boy and different as well. So I was very shy. Had quite severe asthma as well. Spent a lot of time in and out of hospital and and very, very clingy. But I think... um, I I was always ambitious. I was always sort of quietly ambitious. And I've always had this quality that if somebody tells me I can't do something, I will do it. I will prove them wrong. And I think that's kind of served me well and where a lot of my success has come from a combination of that attitude and then and then getting into sport and physical activity. So it was my paediatrician who said to my mum um, when I was about six years old, Zoe would really benefit from being involved in sport and physical activity. One, because it's going to help her asthma. And two, it's going to help with her confidence. Because I was literally, when you say clingy, I was clung to my mum 90% of the time. Really? So so we did. So we joined. I joined a local dance group, started doing dancing. That was my first sport. Um, going to competitions at the weekend, but not like strictly dancing. It was disco dancing. It was like bang, bang, Aww. circle, circle. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, but but I got quite good at it and therefore it got quite expensive and we couldn't afford to keep doing it. But, you know, that was it. I was, I, I'd start to enjoy sport and competing. So joined every club that there was going. And, and I would honestly say that it's through sport and being active that I've achieved success in all the various different aspects of my life from I think becoming competitive made me more 
academic, made me more competitive in the classroom. Um, so therefore I was able to consider medicine as a career. It's a long story how I got onto medicine. I didn't get there the usual route. Um, but also I think it's given me a lot of confidence in, in myself, given me a voice. And a lot of my best friends today are girls that I've played sport with over the years. So, um, so yeah, so really passionate about what activity, sport and even just movement can do for people, but especially for girls and women. I love that. I've, I always think about that correlation between sport and my work. And there's times where I really want to give up when I'm on the running machine. And I'm like, if you just keep going for 10 more minutes, you're going to be the number one podcaster. And I push myself. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I don't get there. And I'm like, damn it, that didn't yeah. count. But, you know, there is a correlation there, I think, in that competitiveness. Because you're striving for something. Yeah. And I think when you're younger, that's the only kind of thing that you can draw parallel to. Yeah. So you said it was a complicated story how you got into medicine. Tell yeah. Me. Do you want to know? Yeah. Okay. So I did quite well at GCSEs um, and then went on to do my A-levels at a college. We didn't have a sixth form, sixth form, so it was a college. And in the first year, I was doing pretty well. But then in the second year, life happened. My, my life became quite tricky. Okay. Um, I left home. Um, my mum was an alcoholic. She was drinking a lot. So, so I'd left home for that reason, was supporting myself. So I had three or four different jobs, two of which were working in a nightclub. Wow. So I was getting in at like three, four in the morning at the weekend. So anyway, the second year of my A-levels did not go to plan. So I didn't get the results that I needed for, well, pretty much, I got a BCE, which you're not getting into medical school with that. Mm-hmm. And it was the only thing I'd ever wanted to do. So I took some year out. I went and lived in Tenerife for a year. And then I worked as a landscape gardener. I sold double glazing. I sold. Fi- I had a fireworks stall. What else did I do? I was a cleaner. I had all these various different jobs. And then I worked in nursing homes. And then I worked for the hospital. I worked as a care assistant in the local hospital. And then decided that, right, I do want to go to university. I can't do medicine. But what can I do that's as close to medicine as possible? And uh, so I discovered that there was a degree course up in Newcastle called Biomedical Sciences. Mm. And it was a BSc, but it was in the medical school. So I went for that. And because I was a mature student, they sort of let me off for not having the grades that I really needed. So about three weeks, first couple of weeks, I found it really difficult because I'd had three years out of studying. Really difficult to get my brain back in gear. But then it all started to click. And I think it was the third week... Um, the senior lecturer came into the room and there were about, I think there were about 250 of us on all the various different biomedical degree courses and we all did the same first year. And he came in and he said, um, we recognise that there are people in this room who wanted to go to medical school but for whatever reason haven't been able to, either they didn't get the grades or they didn't pass the interview or, you know, something's happened in their life. So... We're the first university to ever do this. It's the first time we're doing it. We might never do it again, but we are going to allow up to six people in this room to be able to study medicine next year. You go back into first year and you'll be on medicine. So I was just like, I've got tears in my eyes. What? This is this is my chance. So then my next thought was, but that means I'll be graduating from university age 27. Um, And then I was like, well, do you know what? I may as well try. If they offer it to me and I don't want to do it, I can turn it down. So in order to apply to do this, you had to get, um, there were four modules in the first semester. So you had to get a first in all of those modules. Then you could apply. And it was a 600 word essay, why you think that you would be a good doctor. And then 300 words of any relevant experience, which I'd had loads. I'd worked in nursing homes and healthcare for, for a year and a half by this point. And then they interviewed 12 of us for the six places, but only two of us passed the interview, me and a girl called Ali. And then it was a conditional offer on getting a first in all of the modules in semester two. And Ali got, I think she got 68% in genetics or something like that. She was 2% off in one and they just said no. So I was the only one. So that's how I got onto medicine. And it was hard work, really hard work, but I have to say... That's the hardest work I ever had to do. So medical school, by comparison, was... I would never say it was easy, but, well, it it wasn't difficult. You know, I was vice-captain of the rugby team. I had three jobs. Um, I had a very busy social life. And I passed my medical degree with, with a merit within the top 5% of the year. And And that's why I always say to people, I always say this to a lot of the young people that I work with through my charity, that... 
the harder your path to get to the start line, the easier the race is. Because I think on that first day of medical school, I knew that I'd already done the work, I'd had some life experience, it had been a really difficult and I guess there'd been some good fortune that had got me there. But then medical school was a bit of a breeze. I just loved it. I enjoyed every minute of it, but it wasn't difficult. Oh my God, I'm actually going to cry. That is Aww. so amazing. I can't believe you were like, should I tell you the story? That's like the best story <laughs> I've ever heard that you got into medical school. Something that you wanted to do for a really long time. And this yeah. is what I really want everyone to, I'm so happy you shared that. because It provides hope for people who yeah. think that things are impossible. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for you to say you're leaving home yeah. and leaving your mum yeah. and doing three jobs and supporting yourself and then moving to a different country and trying to support yourself and then having the courage to say, no, actually, I'm going to hit my goal and I really want to be a doctor. And you know what? I'm not unrealistic. I'm going to go for something that's within my reach. And I think that's destiny. I think that yeah. is wild. I've never heard that before. I know. It is crazy. And I think... I do feel that there is an element of destiny because I was three years old when I decided I wanted to be, to be a doctor. And then it, was, it wasn't just that I always wanted to be a doctor. It was that I always knew I would be. It was weird. And, you know, we talk now about manifesting and believing and it, that's what it was. It was just that, no, I will, I will be a doctor because I can't really see a life that doesn't involve me being a doctor in the same way I couldn't see a life that doesn't involve me being a mother it's like life doesn't yeah. make sense to me any other way yeah. so therefore yeah and, and I, when I speak to young people I say look to my sort of recipe for success is number one hard work because without hard work forget it no matter who you are you gotta you gotta work hard number two is about being ambitious and I always say whatever you want to achieve you've almost got to try and achieve beyond that so you know if you want to go to Mars yeah. If you want to go to the moon, aim to get to Mars. Yeah. You know, if you want to be a millionaire, aim to be a billionaire. Because the more, the higher, the higher you set your goals, the more ambitious you are. Even if you don't reach that, you'll fall back onto something. And then the third one is about opportunities. I say, look, we all get millions of opportunities. Opportunities are in front of us every single day, but some of us have to search harder for yeah. those opportunities than others. So based on your gender your ethnicity um your age whether you have disabilities or not you know whether how much money your family have some people will literally have doors flung open for them and some people won't but that doesn't mean you don't have opportunities you've just got to search harder so I always sum it up by saying if a door gets slammed in your face it doesn't mean no it means maybe go around the side of the building look for a window that's slightly ajar and just crowbar your way in. And I feel a bit like that's how I got into medical school. There was definitely some good fortune there. Possibly it was my destiny, but there was also the hard work and just that ambition, just that, mm, well, I'll just get myself as close to it as I possibly can. And then... That's Fingers one of the best crossed. stories I've ever, I've ever heard. Really? I can't believe you're like, do you want to know? I was, that's like, that's unbelievable. You know, it's, it's incredible. And I think when we, first of all, I want to talk about what you just said about the door. A lot of us are lucky in life to have doors open for us, mm -hmm. right? And I think everyone has a certain level of privilege. Some people have more privilege than others. Yes. But everyone does have some level of privilege. If you Definitely. compare yourself to someone who's living in a different country, yeah. all of us have a certain level of privilege. Yeah. But a lot of people say, you know, well, that door was open for them. We for all them. now have the opportunity to knock, mm. send an email, yeah. send a DM, yeah. send a message. You have an opportunity to knock. Yeah. I think you can get bogged down with the, it's not fair. But it's not, Life's fair. not fair. Life's not fair. Unfortunately, it's not. Life is not fair. And yet some people just be like, come on in. Come to Oxbridge. Come and study with yeah. us. You know, come on this like incredible, come and work for this bank or whatever. Because your dad worked here or whatever. Yes. Some people will literally get pulled in. And other people, you might have to fight and kick and scream to get your way in. But you can get in. Yeah. You and just sometimes, the opportunities are there. You just, some people have to search for them more than others so you have to it's about awareness it's about having your eyes open so th this morning is an is another great story should i tell you that one yeah go on 
<laughs> so, what, what, this isn't what do you mean yes <laughs> so when I was at medical school and as, as trainee doctors would all be saying you know what do you want to do well I want to be a pediatrician I want to be whatever and I never knew what I wanted to be I thought I'm, I'm not sure I actually enjoyed everything um but I used to say and I didn't mean it necessarily but I used to always answer that question by saying I'll be a GP and bearing in mind I was in Newcastle and I thought I'd always stay in Newcastle because it's a great city so I used to say, what I'll do is I'll be a GP, but I'll also work in the media. I'll work in GP practice in Newcastle Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday, I'll travel down to London and maybe go out for a nice dinner. Friday, I'll sit on the This Morning sofa with Philip and Fern, who were the presenters at the time. And then on Saturday, I'll go out shopping, just enjoy London. On a Sunday, I'll do the Radio 1 Sunday surgery, which used to be a thing. And then I'll come back to Newcastle ready for work and I used to say it and it was a pipe dream and I never believed it for a second but years later I'm sat there doing a just doing a locum shift in a random GP practice that I don't normally work at and a lady came in with her grandson who had something minor that we dealt with and she said oh, she said, oh the reason I'm looking after my grandson just in case you were wondering is my daughter works in TV um, so I look after him a couple of days in the week. I was like, all oh, right, okay, what did your daughter do? She was a producer on This Morning. And I used, you know, I used to say that this is where manifesting does come in because I'd said this so many times. Something in my brain just lit up and was like, whoa, here is an opportunity, massive opportunity. So there was no way she was getting out that door without me <laughs> saying something. But, you know, it had to be appropriate here as a patient. So anyway, we wrapped up. Um, and she was from Burnley as well. So we had a bit of a general chat. So then as she's going out the door, I said, would you just let your daughter know that if she's ever looking for new doctors for this morning, here I am. That was it. Didn't give her contact details or anything. So Val went home to her daughter, Emma, and said I met this GP today told her about me and Emma's like well did you get a telephone number no so they went back to the GP to find out who the doctor had been to find out her name and then we discovered that we had a mutual friend on Facebook because we're from the same town so she messaged this guy called Dylan who gave her my number Emma got in touch and she said would you come in for a meeting um so I went in for a meeting met the boss Martin with her and they put me on Martin basically said what are you doing on Tuesday I was like nothing so we'll, we'll put you on and we'll see what the viewers say about you see what the viewers think so that was my first opportunity ever on this morning Emma became a great friend the little boy was Oscar and Oscar's now got a little little sister Olivia and I'm Olivia's godmother and I actually delivered Olivia I brought Stop. Olivia into the world and like Oscar's kind of like my honorary godson so oh, you know yeah. that's just another thing where it's like was 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 this meant to be but had it not been for me saying that pipe dream, I didn't think it would happen, then I probably in that moment wouldn't have taken the opportunity 100%. to say to Val, by the way. And without that, I probably wouldn't be on TV. A lot of people say, dream it, believe it, achieve it. Yeah. But manifesting isn't just about wishing. Like no, you, you need said, to take this action. is what I, what I want to do. But yeah. actually, if you didn't program your mind, like you said, to think, I want this morning, I want this morning, the second you meet someone, you're going to be like, hold on, there's an opportunity here. Right. And I think that's the great thing is destiny is everything. Right. Yeah. I do believe that. Me I do too. believe that. But I also think you have to align your actions yes. to match that destiny. 100%. And if you're not doing that work, if you weren't a great doctor, if you weren't somebody that this morning would want, then that wouldn't have worked out for you. Yeah. Right? You uh, yeah. need to know your worth Yeah, first. and the consultation came first. So I guess if Val hadn't have thought Correct. that I was a kind doctor or a nice doctor. But I think that's true. I think, you know, there's... Yes, there are some people who will get doors flung open for them. And that's fine. Great yeah. for them. Good for you. Good for them. But obviously, yeah. when they get to the start line of that job, they're going to find it harder because they of haven't course. done the graph to get there. Then there'll be people like me where I was... I was I'd manifested it to some extent and manifesting just meant I'd said it a hundred times so when the opportunity was there I took action but then also there's the third bit where is the create bit where I, I, I could have been emailing this morning I could have been I never got to that point I think I probably didn't have the self belief but for people out there who are listening to this if you really want to do something even if it's outlandish even it's like you know never in a million years just try because you never know it's like when you spoke to Stephen right yeah so, so yeah, and, and that's the thing, you know, then when you do get to that start line, yes, there's 
whoever who had the door yeah. flung open, but you're in a strong position. 100%. You're going to potentially be his boss because you have a better chance of being better at whatever it is you then have to do. So the harder it is to get to the start line, the easier the race. And I think let's stop focusing on what other people get and what other people are doing and what... It doesn't matter. It doesn't help Your you. journey is different. Yeah. But before we started this podcast, you talked a lot around self-belief. Mm. And in your book, you talk a lot around confidence and self-belief. Yeah. And I actually thought that you perhaps struggled with it more than I thought. And I'll say, I'll, I'll tell you why. I think it's incredibly brave what you did. And you must have had a lot of confidence and self-belief to think that you would be okay. I'll explain why. Because when you've talked about it, you've said, I wish when I was younger I was more confident or I was, yeah. had better self-talk. Yeah. But what you've done is extraordinary. Like, I'm, I'm very blown away at the fact that you just left. Mm. You went to Tenerife. Mm. You know, it's taken me a long time to have the confidence to leave my house. Mm. Well, I think... To be honest, I think back then it was it was an easier option to leave yeah. because there was at home was not great. Um the things going on at home were yeah, it was actually harder to be at home than it was to not be at home. And it wasn't you know, it wasn't great and it wasn't rosy. The bit where I went mm. to Tenerife, that was after I completed my A levels, that was fine. Um it was me and my friend. We went for two weeks on a holiday, intending to not come back and we didn't come back for ten months, which was a success for us. But I mean, I'm definitely not going to go into it. There's a lot of stuff that happened when we were there that was that was dodgy that, well, I think my, I didn't have confidence and I didn't have self-belief and I didn't value myself perhaps and I perhaps was, in, I was in a relationship at the yeah. time where it wasn't healthy for me. Um, a lot of people so feel think, like that, don't they? When they yeah, so I think at that time, I really I didn't have much confidence. I genuinely didn't. And and to be honest, I think my I think there's there there is a, such a thing as true inner confidence, which some people are just blessed to have. Um, but then there is also a when you get to thirty. For those out there in their twenties, yeah, there's something that happens that you stop caring so much about the little stuff. Like if you get a spot on your face, it's not a big drama anymore. You're just like, oh, it doesn't yeah. really matter. I don't care. I'm not even going to cover it up. I don't yeah. care. Or you get a hair sprouting from your nipple and you're just like, <laughs> I'm just going to pluck it out. I'm not going to freak out about it. And you start to be less bothered by the little things that really bothered you in your 20s. And then I'm in my 40s. I'm 43. When you get to your 40s, and I don't know if everybody does, but for me anyway, my confidence now comes from a place of, I just, I don't care. I, I, I promise, I swear, I do not look at how many likes I get on my posts. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I look at the comments and yeah. if I've, I'm, I'm bothered if I've upset somebody, I'm bothered if I've offended somebody, I'm bothered if I've done something that's unkind um, because these are all things about how I value myself. But if somebody doesn't like what I'm wearing, I genuinely don't give a shit. If somebody yeah. doesn't, you know, if I haven't done my, sometimes I go on this morning and I haven't had time to do my hair. Mm. I don't give a shit. Yeah. As long as what I've said is factually correct, helpful, I haven't frightened anybody and I've delivered that message in the best way that I could, I genuinely don't care if my hair's messy. Um, and, know. you know, we were just chatting before, I've lost a nail, I've got these stick-on nails. <laughs> because, well, you were saying that somebody yeah. commented on your nails. Well, no, I heard a reel where these two girls were talking and one of them was saying, it gives me the ick if people don't have their nails done, like you need to have something. And the other girl was like, I just like a clean polish. And she was like, that's really gross. And it was just mean. You I know, mean, people don't have the time. I think that's disgraceful because straight away, anyone who works in, works in the NHS in a hospital who looks who actually has contact with patients will have nails that look like that because we're not allowed for hygiene reasons. So yeah. her saying that, she's just offended every single NHS worker who mm -hmm. has direct contact with patients. Um, so I, yeah, so I don't care I'm, I'm missing one I, you, you noticed I was missing one before we came on and I was like oh I could stick one on because they're just here but I was like I genuinely don't, don't care I just don't care and I think that's something that happens when you get to 14 I think especially when you have children you care less because you don't have the time to care less and yeah. it's really liberating and I wish I'd had that when I was younger Mm. Um, so one of the one of in fact one of the big sections of the book that I'm probably that I think is one of the most important sections um, because this book is for people aged 9 to 13 
it's all about the the self love and self respect. Um, and it's and there's lots of sort of tools in there. There are um, sort of actual activities that they can do mm-hmm. um, and mental games that they can play and to to help them have confidence, but more importantly, to love themselves and to have self-respect. Mm. And I don't know if you're happy to share about what happened just earlier as, you were, as we were coming. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just sat downstairs because I arrived without any makeup on. So I just put a little bit of makeup on because I do care to something. I do care yeah. what I look like. But if somebody didn't like it, I wouldn't care. Um, I know what you mean. I'm like that as well. I'm yeah. like, I do. I, I like like to look nice, but then also only when I want to look nice. Yeah, and I Does think for a woman sense? of your age, yeah. I think you are very, very confident yeah, and self-assured. Well, yeah, you think However, I'm interesting. Yeah, go on. We were downstairs and you, you just wanted to put a bit of lipstick on and you said, what was it you said? You said, I look like a... Drowned rat. I look like a drowned rat. And I said, I, I better put a, some lipstick on before I look like a drowned rat. And I said, why would you say that to yourself? And what did you say? I said, what? I didn't say, what? It's not that bad. And then I said, if I walked in here and my lipstick needed redoing, would you say to me, you look like a drowned rat? And you said, no. So in the book, that's one of the things I talk about. And I think my key message is the language we use when we're talking to ourselves like that, even if it's innocent, like it was downstairs, it's really bad for us and we should treat ourselves with at least as much love and respect as we treat other people. When we look in a mirror and we've got a spot and it's the end of the world and all that language, oh my God, I look disgusting, I'm minging, people are going to think this, people are going to think that. If your friend was next to you and said, I've got a spot, you'd be like, it doesn't matter, I barely even notice. You never you wouldn't notice say, it. Yeah. You, wouldn't think, you, you wouldn't think in your head, you look disgusting, you no. are a minger, people are going to be laughing minger. at you. <laughs> That's such a word of the 80s, isn't it? Word. And a northern word. You just, you just wouldn't do it, but we do that to ourselves. And I did that to myself in my younger, in my younger years. And I think if we can kind of cement these ideas into girls' minds when they're very, very young then they will grow up because boys don't some boys do but yeah. in the mainstream boys don't talk to themselves like that they don't. in the way that girls and women do and another really important point is um when we have children and our children look like us because they have 50 percent of our genetics and if you're a mother and you're saying in front of your daughter you look like a drowned rat to yourself you're saying you're telling her she looks like a drowned rat because she looks like you. So, <laughs> so true. So I think my message to, so true. To, to your audience is, if you can't do it for yourself, do it for your future children. I love Just that. learn and practice talking positively to yourself. And I think it can be life-changing. That is life-changing. I never thought about it from the perspective of, wait, if you see your mum speaking about herself like that, then obviously you're going to take that. Now, my mum is like an angel. She is, honestly, the most happiest person ever. Sometimes I say to her, why are you always so happy? And <laughs> and can I be like that? Because I'll wake up and I'll be like, yes, hi, morning, whatever, don't talk to me. And she'll be like, good morning, Aww. are you okay? <laughs> I'm like, why so happy all the time? Like, I'm <laughs> moody sometimes when I wake up. But a scene that comes to mind, have you seen Mean Girls? Yes. Do you remember in Mean Girls where one of them, in Mean Girls, when they're standing in front of the mirror and Regina says, oh my God, I hate this. Yeah. And then someone says, oh my God, I hate that. And then they look at Lindsay Lohan and they say, and she doesn't say anything. Yeah. Because she's not used to criticizing herself. Yes. And she looks in the mirror and she says, I have really bad breath in, in the, the morning. morning. <laughs> and they're all like, oh, ew. They're like, gross, ew. But the yeah, because one of them's it, like, my pores are huge. Yeah. <laughs> But it's like, so that's the social norm, right? The so society has taught us, as women, to put ourselves down. Why? Do, so don't. But that, I actually do feel that sometimes I do that. Mm. Because, and I don't know why, but downstairs, it's not like I think I look horrific. But I think it's kind of funny that I'm calling myself a drowned rat. Yeah. But you're right, I wouldn't say that to someone else, but it's almost quite jovial. But what perhaps we're not realizing, and and you think I'm really confident, which is amazing, and thank you, but (laughs) there are days where I think I'm so ugly and I'm so worthless and I'm so unsuccessful and I'm so far behind, and that happened to me when I was 30. And when I turned 30, it almost hit me 
like a ton of bricks that I wasn't where I thought I was going to be. And a lot of the time we don't think we compare. Mm. And a lot of the time, you know, people look at me and say, but you're so confident. You're the one that's saying you shouldn't marry early or settle for someone or, or rush and you should take your time. And yes, I do feel that way. But you do realize I've had to reprogram my mind. And when you're going through any change, you're often pulled back by your initial thoughts. Mm -hmm. So yes, I tell people to not have expectations by the time they're 30. And I believe that. But just like everyone else, I doubt myself. Mm -hmm. And that was really difficult for me to overcome. And mm -hmm. I wish that more people were talking about it because it's really, if you feel a bit uncomfortable saying that online as well, because then people are like, but you say a different thing. And I, I am, I believe it and I yeah. say it. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I don't feel it. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you don't still ideally want these things. Of course. But, you know, you, I, I, I get that. Because that really resonates with me because I was 39 when I met my partner, Stuart, and I was 41 when I had my first child. He's so cute, by Not, the way. I say that like I'm having more. I don't <laughs> think we're having more. I haven't completely written it off, but I'm 43 <laughs> now, so. Um, but I did freeze my eggs. But when I was 35, I came out of a fairly long-term relationship. And a bit like how I said, I almost, I could never visualise a life for me not being a doctor yeah. and I could never visualize a life for me not being a mother like not everybody wants to have children and I totally respect that and some mm. people don't know but for me I always knew I wanted to be a mother and and I'm like you you know I'm sort of so down with people should choose the life they want and they shouldn't feel judged by certain values whether exactly. that's coming from family or from religious ideas or whatever you just live your life but that doesn't mean you still don't really want things and yeah. it doesn't mean you don't feel disappointed that you've reached the age of 30 and you always thought you would be settled down you always kind of hoped you would and whilst right. it's, you empower people to feel good about whatever their life is you can still you still will feel disappointed it's not and that, you can feel yeah. you can almost start I start to panic I think it's not it's not how I feel at the moment that I'm disappointed. It's more that I'm still battling of, I don't think at 30 I should have my own house and I should be married, right? Yeah. But for 28 years I was told that I should. Yeah. So on those moments where somebody writes a comment and says, you are so such an idiot and you're so insecure yeah. and feminism has ruined your life, for a minute yeah. I look at that and Quite, think, yeah. oh God, have I? Yeah. Am I on the wrong path? Should I have followed the path? Well, that, Shit, am I falling behind? Do you know what the, all that shows is that you're not a psychopath? <laughs> Honestly. It shows you're not a psychopath and it shows that you're human and it shows that you will doubt. You, have, you know, it, yeah. it's, it is healthy to have some self-doubt. But then when mm. you think about that, it's like you say, for a minute. Yes, But exactly. when you think about it and you figure it out and you think, okay, well, no, here is another one of these signals. But I've thought about this before. I've weighed it up and actually this is what I think and yeah. that's what's important and I'm cool with it. Exactly. But I think, yeah, you, to be challenged is not a bad thing. It's not because it reassures you on what you want. Exactly. But often it can allow you to feel that other people are disappointed in you, mm -hmm. especially if you get it so much at once. So for me, I sometimes find it difficult when certain family members will mm -hmm. talk to me about getting married and yeah. why I'm not in a rush. Yeah. And then my friends will ask me and then every psychopath online will tell me yeah. that I'm never going to get married and I'm going to be a spinster and I'm a loser and it's the combination of things and I think when I turned 30 it was oh my god it was so overwhelming and I cried for a day and then I got over it but I did I did have a meltdown I, I would did have I, a meltdown. I would give you some advice on that because I think nowadays we have especially if we have a presence online mm. or in the media I think everybody feels that they have a a right to an opinion about your life choices mm -hmm. um and you've got what you've got to do is think this is kind of what I think I think 90 95% of my decision making is based on what I think because I'm the most important person in my life I'm more important than my partner yeah it's hard to, I'm not more important than my child but no. in terms of decision making um so if I'm making a decision about what's right for me 95% of that comes from me the other 5% is how will that affect the people that I care about, my family, you know, is that hurt? Will they be hurt? Will they be upset? Will they be disappointed? And that comes into it. But people online, people I've never met, I don't care. I yeah. don't care. I genuinely do not care. <laughs> and I think since I've had Lisbon, he's two and a half now, 
and the amount of judgment that comes when you become a mother. And I'm I'm really? a doctor, but I am not a professional mother, right? This is my first child. I didn't even know how to change a nappy. I knew how to put a nappy on. Like, you know, <laughs> in clinic, we have babies, right? Yeah. And we do the check and we check them all over. And then, you know, I just put the nappy back on, stick it, and then let mum put the nappy back on properly. Um, and I think I have changed nappies when I was younger, but when it came to changing the nappy, it was actually... I was, I was doing okay. It was actually Stuart's mum said, you've got to remember there's little flaps. Make sure that the flaps are coming <laughs> out because otherwise they don't work properly. Yeah. So make sure the flap, make sure the willy's pointing down and make sure the flaps are out. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. Um, so, so yeah, so lots of people were judging me on my parenting choices. And the thing that came up again and again and again was, as a doctor, you should know better. Do you know what though, Shivani? Genuinely. I do not care. I don't care. That is not. I don't care. Um, I took Lisbon on this morning, and I've watched part of the clip, and it does look a bit crazy, but what people didn't see is just before we went on air with him, yeah. he was screaming his head off. And when he was little, he used to like to be rocked really firmly, and that would settle him. So just as just as we came back from the ad break, he just stopped crying. So I kept doing this with him all the way through the interview. <laughs> so it looks like we've got a sleeping baby and I'm doing this. So, so you can imagine all the comments. She doesn't even know how to hold a baby, blah, blah, blah. But I don't care. You said something interesting there, though. You said, I'm not a professional mother. No. Where's the university course? I know. What is a professional mother? I don't know. I think people who've had more than five children are professional <laughs> mothers. But that's the thing. Like, becoming a mum, it is crazy. Because really, you know, the way as human beings we were designed to become mothers was as part of a very close-knit, tight-knit community, right? Where yes. we watch people mothering from being very little and when you have a baby the community comes together to look after the mother so that the mother can look after the baby with the aunties telling you how to do this and how to do that and maybe being a bit judgmental but being helpful more than anything whereas now we are in the confines of our own house um my mum passed away years ago Stuart's Mm -hmm. mum lives far away but was always down the phone but you know it's your mother-in-law it's not the same so we were in the confines of those four walls, the two of us and a baby, having never parented before. And you've got the internet, but it's all conflicting. And it's, and you just, like now, if I have a second baby, I'll know what to do. But there's yeah. so many things. You're like, I just, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. You know, can I put this blanket on the child? Or is that a risk for if they end up wiggling under it? And, you know, you've got to put them in the cot and they've got to have their, f- in the pram, they've got to have their feet at the bottom so they can't slide down. All these rules, you're just like, they're never ending. Oh gosh, I never thought about that. Well, why would you? No, well, I, I know, I sometimes I look after my niece and nephew and after a day I'm like, okay, bye-bye now. Yes, yeah. It's so tiring. Yes. I also don't know what to do with them. This is so funny. Being an auntie is a lot of fun. I have it's a 13 so year old nephew and... That was they fun. are the best. And having a baby is fun as well, but it's hard. You have a son and your mm-hmm. book is predominantly for girls. What are the things that you're teaching your son and what are the things that you've learned as a mother that perhaps you wish you had? So when you have a child and you're just going through the normal ropes of parenting, I think nowadays there are things that you teach them the way you were taught and then you realise, oh, actually that's not right. So the other day, so he's, you know, he's, talking now he's two and a half so he's talking and is a chatterbox so I'm teaching him to be polite so you know if it's somebody we know or somebody that we see you say hello and if they say how are you you say I'm good thank you and they was like oh that's not right I was like you shouldn't say you're good you should say you're good if you're good but if you're not good you shouldn't say you're good because that's something we've all been taught how are you today oh I'm great or not so bad but we don't really say how we are. So so you pick up on these little things and then consent. So he started saying, he started saying, go away, which is not very pleasant <laughs> to his granny. <laughs> granny, go away. So I've been saying to him, no, you don't say go away. That's not polite. But you can say stop. And, you know, if somebody, if granny's trying to kiss you and you don't want to kiss her, that's your choice. And you say stop. So, so that's, it's te- you know, it's teaching consent because me as a son teaching him consent from the age of two means that when he's older, he knows what that is. Some, stop means stop. That's and, so interesting. You know, I, I think, I think about these things because I'm thinking about he's a boy and the responsibility, I think, as mothers of boys that we have to make sure that our boys grow up to be kind, caring, um, so yeah, and I think you don't really, it's not until this situation arises that you think, okay, I, I'm not going to tell him off. I'm not going to tell him he can't, he's not allowed to say go away 
because what is why is he saying go away? He's saying go away because he doesn't want that to happen. So you know a better way. So yeah, so, that's but really so now, fascinating. Now when I'm going in to get a call and he's like, no, mommy, stop. I'm like. Oh, rude. <laughs> okay. But that's right. If he that's doesn't want to so cuddle true. me. So, so, so yeah, Ari, so that's consent. So Ari, my nephew, he says, don't do that. Mm. Right? Um, so my dad made a funny face at him, like, and he said, stop doing that to me. And we found it hilarious. We thought it was so funny. But you've mentioned a really interesting point there around consent, because mm. a lot of problem we have with men when they grow up is they don't understand the value of consent and they mm-hmm. don't understand what no means. Mm-hmm. Was that conscious that you've that you've really emphasised on that point of consent? Because when you were saying about the good thing, I thought about that. Okay, fine. But there's a lot of people right now who think that we're too woke mm. and we're teaching our kids ridiculous things. I think on this morning there was someone that came on and said, if my child doesn't want me to change their nappy, they will say no and I'm giving mm-hmm. them that consent. Yeah, well, and that's the thing with Lisbon. There are some things that he doesn't have a choice. So he was having his, we were brushing his hair last night in the bath, <laughs> put conditioner on it, and it hurts, right? He's got yeah. curly hair. It's painful. So you, you just explain, look, you know, I know you don't like it. I'm really sorry, but we have to brush your hair. Brushing his teeth, he doesn't want to brush his teeth. But when it comes to things like tickling or being touched or hugging or kissing, that's where he should, he should, I think he should have consent. He oh. should, teaching him consent from the age of two, I think is right. And if he doesn't want to give his granny a kiss, he shouldn't have to. I believe that's so. But, you know, it comes to having his teeth brushed, he, you know, he has to because it's actually for his health. So we have to, we have to override it. So mm. in our household, there are certain things that he can say stop to and we'll stop. And there are certain things that, like teeth brushing, but you just have to explain the reason why. Like, no, we have to brush your teeth because. I love that. It's tricky. Really it's tricky. And I guess it may be slightly different where that boundary is and every household might be slightly different. But mm. but we've figured it out. In how, and I remember a friend of mine, Zoe Hardman, she has, t- she has two, well, she has three children, two children and a stepdaughter, but um, the youngest two. She has a girl and a boy, and the boy's much younger than the girl, but but he's a bruiser. They're about the same size. And she said she's teaching them consent, because when they fight, it's about, you know, they're about as good as each other at fighting, but they tap out. So if one says tap out, like if one says no, whatever, the, the, part of it's play, isn't it? But if somebody yeah. says tap out, that means stop, and it stops instantly. So that's how she's teaching them consent. Because I think the world we live in now, and what we know, and I think especially surrounding some of the more recent you know I think we're I think the to just just violence of men towards women is something that was I don't know I'm trying to think in the 80s when I was a little girl is it that we weren't so aware of it is it that it was more accepted I mean it used you used to be allowed to rape your wife if they were your wife you were allowed to rape them I mean Mm -hmm. But but I think nowadays, bringing up boys in the year 2000 and beyond, we, we know that violence towards women against men is rife. Yeah. And I think we have a responsibility to gently stamp it out when they're, when they're young. I love that. And also, if you ask, I think 99% of people, they'll tell you that they struggle in setting boundaries. Mm. And what you're doing from a young age is explaining what a boundary is. Yeah. And, you know, since it's become winter, I've stopped going to the gym in the morning because I used to wake up really early at five o'clock mm. and at 5.30 I'd leave my house and I'd get to the gym for six. And now I'm petrified because there was one day I did that and it was pitch black and I have to walk through a park and I've got my trainers on, I've got my backpack on and I look like a hobo. Yeah, mm. I, I do not look nice, but that's, that's mm. irrelevant if I'm honest. I stopped going, not because I was so scared, I stopped going to the gym in the morning because I knew that if something happened to me, someone would have said, you shouldn't have been doing that. Mm-hmm. And how sad is that? Mm-hmm. Because if I have to walk through a park in the morning to get to the gym, I'm more afraid that someone will say, you deserve it because it was pitch black and you should have a responsibility to not go at that time. So now I've actually stopped going to the gym in the morning. I go at lunchtime because if I go at seven, I feel like it ruins my work day. Mm. But it's so sad that I can no longer go because the first thing that came into my head was when that girl, Sarah Everard, mm. was killed. Mm. People said she had her trainers on. She left at 9.30, the lights were on, it wasn't late, she wasn't drunk. But people still said 
it was dark. It's disgusting. I used and to live in Clapham. It's awful. And in my head, I thought, someone will say that about me. They'll say, it's your fault. So I just don't go anymore, which I think is disgusting and sad. It's horrendous. It's horrendous. I used to live in Clapham and I used to walk on that very same path that she got taken from at night, early in the morning, all the time. Um, and I just... I think it started a lot of conversations. I remember a conversation I had with Stuart. I remember we were coming back from visiting friends. We were on the train and um, we were living in Ballam at the time and we we walked from the station along our street, but it was quite a long, dark street. And I was saying, whenever I'm walking on my own, I used to always walk, I'm quite a tall person. I used to sort of make myself big and I'd I often have my key in my hand, ready? In the middle, so do I. And she was like, do you really? I so said, yeah. I. I was like, have you never done that? He said, no. And he, and he had this moment, it was like a light bulb moment for him where he realised he'd never even had to think like that. He'd never had to think for a moment that about footsteps behind you. Uh-huh. Do I turn round and look to see who it is? Or is that make them more likely? Me? Is that going to make them strike? You know, should I cross over the road to see if they follow? Should I actually get my phone out or keep my phone in my pocket? Can I get my keys? Just because you hear footsteps behind yeah. you. And he's like, no, I've never even thought about it. I've never had to think about that. It's nuts. Women he, do. That, you know, that male privilege, yeah. that particular male privilege, um, I think he realised in that moment. And, yeah. How funny. You said it and I knew exactly what we were talking about. Yeah, right? you were there. Yeah, you the your keys in, in your hand. hand like this. I've done it in an Uber many times before. And I always have my hood up. And like you, I'm not that tall, but I always like put my hood up so I look a bit more like, you know, street that someone can't attack me. And I do walk like that sometimes. And I always think that it's always, I always feel like I have to be ready. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that as it's turned dark now, a lot of women are more anxious because it gets dark at four o'clock. It gets dark. There's no sun until seven. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of women, it's much harder. Mm -hmm. And the root of it is that women do not feel safe. No. You do feel like you're taking a risk. You feel like you're taking a risk. I remember when I was at university in Newcastle and I couldn't afford to get taxis. You know, I walked everywhere. I walked miles and miles and miles. But sometimes I'd think, should I go the short route, which is through the park, or go the long way around? And sometimes I would take the short route. And, And I guess it was that same guilt that I felt that, in order to take the short route, I'm taking a risk. I'm risking my life sick, don't to you? get there five minutes earlier. And you yeah. do, you feel sick and you start, you do start judging yourself, yeah. which is, mm. And you're right. Like, I I mean, I just still don't take taxis. I still take the tube. I still take the train. I mean, who, who can afford to take an Uber everywhere you go? Yeah. But the thing is, is that I'm just very conscious of it now. And I think that that case really did bring up for so many women, how conscious Mm. they really are. Because for us, it's just normal. It's just Mm -hmm. ingrained in us. Mm -hmm. You know, when I go to events, I always will take a pair of trainers and a hoodie and joggers in my bag. If I'm wearing a dress, I will never, ever, ever go in that. When I had to go to the Vali event at the Mm. Savoy, it was so fancy. I turned up in a hoodie and leggings and I got changed in a bathroom in in an Indian outfit because I'm way too afraid to get on the train Mm -hmm. with anything on. You know, there's so many cri- There's so much crime at the moment as well. So do you, here's a question for you. So because it was a Diwali event and you, yeah. did you wear a sari? A lenga, yeah. Um, what, so it's not a sari, it's a... It's like a top and a skirt. Okay, yeah. yes, the two-piece. Yes. So when you say you wouldn't get on the tube wearing that, is that because you are afraid of judgment? Is it no, ju- no, because no, I've done that before. If I was with my partner or I was with my, you know, my friend or if I was with someone, then I wouldn't be so scared. Yeah. Not with my mom, because I feel like I'd be scared with my mom. She's like a baby. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I would be too scared to get on that people would attack me. So you're more afraid of sort of male violence Correct. than you are of any sort of racial... Like catcalling. You know, this morning, mm. someone came up to me and goes, you're right, babes. Yeah, and like look me up and down. I was like, also, it's just disgusting. No, but also, also, to men I think, listening to this, please just just don't do that. You are not giving us compliment. I, I it looked is horrific. I I just came out the <laughs> the shower, and so like I had black all underneath my eyes, and I was like, why are you saying that? I look, and then I like had my phone, and I was like, oh gosh, I forgot to wipe. You know, sometimes when you forget to wipe, and my eyes were literally like black. I was like, what were you doing? But. It makes you feel uncomfortable. And look, I'm quite someone who is quite confident and I would be like, shut up, that's disgusting, right? If I felt confident in that yeah, situation. Yeah. But I remember uploading a reel and I, I went through this whole thing around this guy who came up to me on the train. 
He was trying to talk to me and I said, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. But I also said, I'm really sorry every single time instead mm. of turning around and being like, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. And it was only at the point where I felt he was being really aggressive and intrusive. I said, I don't want to talk to you. But do you know what the comments were on TikTok? This is why men feel they can't come and talk to women. And by the way, he was saying things like, look at the way your eyes are staring at your phone. Do you not want to talk to me? You know, do you have a boyfriend? What does he do? Oh, of course he does. And this was at 11.30 at night. And I made it very clear that I didn't want to talk to him. I, I said it politely. But the comments were of men saying, you didn't tell him no. You said, I'm sorry. He was just trying to talk to you. This is why men can't even chat to girls you know, these days. This is the problem. And this is, so this conversation I had with Stuart, I think it was very, there were light, more, light bulb moments for both of us. And I was, he was telling me about something that had once happened at work where I think somebody got fired because they'd been sending messages to the group that were inappropriate. inappropriate yeah. um, but this is where it starts. And I think, you know, the majority of men out there at the time of Sarah, Sarah Everard were saying you can't condemn all men because there are a few. And that's right. However, if I think back to when I was at university and especially the rugby lads and the sports teams and also my friends who'd been, actually it was my friends who'd been to private boys boarding schools largely, mm. the types of conversations they would have with each, with each other, the way they would talk about women, like, oh, did you get a dip? Like, you know, just so disrespectful, so disgusting. Mm. And whilst that doesn't make them murderers and rapists, I think what it does, I think that sort of chat being socially acceptable for those few people out there that are, whether they're unwell, you know, however you want to look at it, for those people that do have that inclination to do something like that, whether or not they will act or not, I think what society deems to be acceptable sets the threshold for the ones that will and the ones that won't and I think if we can all as a society or as men actually just just not be like that anymore just not mm. do that anymore just talk respectfully about men women or people then the number of people that will commit those crimes will come down and that starts with things like setting boundaries at two mm. and I think a lot of people are so resistant to change and that's why we're labeled as the woke generation who want to change everything mm. but I think what's really important is we've seen a problem how are we going to change it you telling somebody who's been conditioned for 29 years to not speak in a certain way is not going to happen overnight unless they truly really want to and they're only going to do that if something has happened to someone close to them or someone that they're impacted by so it's hard. Like, I find it hard to change my thoughts 29 yeah. years. And I'm yeah. so passionate about it. Yeah. So imagine how hard it is for a boy to change their yeah. thoughts. And I think we have to respect that. You know, the boundaries now are different to what they were 20 years ago. Exactly. And I think we find this with um, comedians, don't we, as well? Like, yeah. some of the best comedians, like the jokes they used to tell that were hilarious, they can't tell anymore because yeah. it's changed. And, you know, whatever your views are, whatever you think about that, it has changed. And if I'm completely honest, I'm sure at university there will be times I've talked about men in yeah. a way that now wouldn't be inappropriate. I played on the women's rugby team. A lot of our, <laughs> a lot of our songs were about rugby men and they weren't very polite. And I'm sure that the team <laughs> these days, <laughs> secretly I'd quite like it if they did. I'm sure they don't sing them anymore because yeah. it's just not the done thing. But times have changed. And if you want to call it woke or you want to call it whatever, it's changed in the direction of people being kinder mm -hmm. I think being more responsible of their actions and the things that they say and how they impact other people and and that it can't be a bad thing it can only be a good thing mm -hmm. all right some of the comedians jokes aren't quite as funny as they used to be they've yeah. had to find a new way to be funny but that's a small price to pay agree how confident do you think your son is at the age of two? Oh my gosh he is so confident <laughs> do you think there's do you think there's a reason for that or do you think people are just born with it I think he's the sort of person who is just born with it Really? Um, but obviously, I think his nurturing as well has, has played a part in that, in that he's never had anything to be worried about. He's ever had, you know, he, if I say to my little boy, I say, Lisbon, who is the most beautiful boy in the world? He goes, me. And he believes it. But that's because that's what I've always told him. So it's I a combination of, of his personality and, and his nurturing. And I just really hope he can always have that. Because I, that. I know I didn't. And I think... It's a rare, it's a rare thing, and I think many of us lose it as we get older. But that's the innocence of childhood, isn't it? That's before the world and society has had the opportunity 
to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. That's before you've watched Mean Girls, where they go look in the mirror and they go, oh, my paws are so big. And, you know, that's before that's happened. It's the innocence. What was your earliest memory of someone telling you that you weren't good enough or you didn't fit in? Or what you just spoke around about confidence, where you thought, oh. Um, I think my earliest memory, it's not really of somebody telling me that I didn't fit in, but the earliest, when I think about confidence and what made me so shy and so clingy to my mum was when I was little and I was in the pram and I had Afro hair, everyone wanted to touch my hair. And, you know, and it came from a place of kindness. They weren't being rude. They were being polite. It's very much like, oh, look at her. Isn't she beautiful? Um, who's, you know, my mum was white. So then the next question would be like, she's not yours, though. Who's it? Is it your niece? Is it your... She's like, no, it's my daughter. <laughs> um, but everyone wanted to touch my hair. And some people would just touch it. So the hair touching thing when you have Afro hair is a real thing. Yeah. And I think that's probably the first thing that made me feel like I was different. I stood out. Um, but my mum was very, very clever. At, it's something I talk about in the book. It's about reframing your differences because when we're young, we do want to be the same as everybody else. But as we get older, we start to value our differences. Um, but there were two things that my mum always did for me. Um, so growing up in the 80s when some beds were very popular and you'd walk around in the evening, you'd see these purple sort of blue lights in people's bedrooms. So whenever she saw one, she'd always say the same thing. She's like, oh, look, Zoe, what's that? And I'd say, oh, it's somebody who's got a sunbed. And she's like, and why have they got a sunbed? And I'd say, because they want to have brown skin. She'd say, yes, because they want to have beautiful brown skin like yours. So they have to have a sunbed. And God, God gave you your beautiful brown skin for free. And then the same thing applied when we walked past hairdressers, 80s, perms. And she'd say the same thing. She's like, why is that lady under that big? thingy um and I'd say because she wants to have curly hair and she said yes because she wants to have curly hair so she said if anybody ever says anything mean to you about the color of your skin or about your curls it's just because they're jealous and I think I kind of grew up when when people did say things about my hair or my skin in my head it's like oh it's okay I felt sympathy for them I believed it's because they were jealous and I think that's that's the power of sort of reframing your differences and and valuing yourself. And I think in the book, one of the things I say is, look, whoever you are, that's who you are. What you look like is what you look like. Mm -hmm. And if you filter yourself on social media and you create a version of yourself that's not real and that's not honest, then you're saying to yourself that you're not happy with how you are. But the reality is you are who you are and you've got what you've got. So instead of doing that, put that time, effort and energy into learning to love yourself because nobody is as good at being you as you and nobody ever will be so and the most important person the most important relationship you'll ever have is the one with yourself so I think investing in that and there's loads of sort of activities in there that sort of teach teach them ways that they can learn to love themselves but I think if I could go back and give one little message to little Zoe Mm -hmm. it really would be just to treat yourself with as much love and as much kindness and as much respect as you do other people and life would have been a lot easier I love that that's so amazing I love that story (laughs) one of the best it reminds me of something really when we're talking around embracing our differences because one of the best things a podcast guest told me was look at your hand Mm. look at your fingers they're all different lengths and they're all different sizes. And if each of your fingers was the same length as each other, your (laughs) hand would be useless. How would you grip? How would you hold things? Right? Yeah, How would you make a fist? So true. They're all different for a reason. Yeah. And just like that, we're all different in the world for a reason. Every single one of us is different for a reason. So let's stop trying to be like everyone else. And that's the problem now. We all want to get Botox, we want to get fillers, we all want to keep up with the latest trends. And It can be tempting, trust me. There are times I look at myself and I think, oh, I might just get a little bit done and it's so normal now, so why don't I just do Botox? And yeah. someone the other day said, smile, and I, and I smiled. They were like, oh, you do need a little bit around your eyes. And I thought, no, what? And I thought, no, I don't. And then I thought, okay, well, you know what? I have loads of laugh lines and I'm okay with that because I do laugh all the time. Yeah. 
And I don't want, and I'm proud of having that. Do you know what? I met a lady the other day. She was in her 80s. I was doing some filming at a hospital and she was one of the volunteers and her job is to greet people when they come in. And this lady's in her 80s and by her own admission, her memory's not as good as it used to be. So I think she probably had some dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was absolutely lovely. She was so kind. And the lines on her face told a story because she had lines, smile lines, and laughter lines around here. Yeah. And they were really, she didn't really have any frown lines. And you just looked at, you looked at her face and you can see this is a woman who has been smiling with her eyes and with her mouth her whole life and has not been frowning. And if you Botox yourself, you're not going to, you're not going to get lines in that pattern. And it really made me think about, I've had Botox in the past. Um, and I do have, I have Profilo now, okay, but I've never had fillers or anything. Okay. So it's kind of like, just gives you a bit of plumpness. But I looked <coughs> at her and I thought, I actually don't want to look, when I'm 80, I want my face to tell the story of my life. And I just hope that my lines are in the same places as hers because she was so beautiful. Oh, but there's so many times this podcast that I've wanted to cry. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know if I'm really emotional today. I don't know what it is, but it's been honestly such a joy. And I really oh. think that your story is so remarkable. Thank you. You've inspired me and I'm, not, I'm, sure, I'm sure you're going to inspire so many other oh. girls as well. So thank you thank so much. You. Thank you for having me. It's been great.